Well, if you have your Bible, we're going to transition now to, to our sermon, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, chapter 6, and chapter 8. So you can kind of mark those spots if you'd like to. <clears throat> so I wonder, I mean, Jessica's story is one of coming to Christ as an adult. Uh, I came to Christ when I was seven years old. I can still remember uh, very much. My parents have only ever owned and lived in one house, and I won't tell you how much they paid for it 40 some odd years ago, but it's less than I paid for a used minivan a few years ago. Uh, and so I still have this memory of uh, growing up in the church and going to church one Sunday, and Jan Foster was my Sunday school teacher, and they're dear family friends. In fact, I ended up officiating the wedding ceremonies of two of her kids. Uh, who were friends of mine, my age. So we go way back with the Fosters, and I'm pretty sure she shared something about the devil that just scared the pants off of me and made me think, man, I need Jesus so bad. And um, that wasn't it, though. It wasn't just, just fear of the devil, but it was knowing. I'd heard the gospel a lot growing up in Jersey. I had heard from my parents. I'd heard from my grandparents. I'd heard from my Sunday school teachers, from my pastor. Uh, I had heard the gospel, Jesus crucified and resurrected to pay the penalty for my sin and raised from the dead so that I might have new life in him and be reconciled to God. I'd heard that a lot. When I was seven, something, something of the Spirit of God moved in me to respond to that. I went home, knelt down at the same window where I still take my kids to that house and we hang out in that bedroom today. I knelt down at that window, Sesame Street stickers covering the window. Forever Oscar the Grouch and Cookie Monster are part of my salvation testimony. And I just, you know, I prayed a seven-year-old version of saying, Jesus, I'm yours I want to be yours. I know you, what you have done, you have done for me, and I, I receive it. Take my life. I'm, I'm yours. Some version of that. I went and shared that with my mom, and of course we celebrated together. And, you know, it, I, when I think about that, I still, you know, when you think about moments that are that impactful in your life, do you look back and sort of have this flush of emotion that rushes up on you? That still happens to me. But what's interesting is that over the years, I found that I started to minimize that testimony because I was saved. And that's biblical language, by the way. It's, it's kind of lost its popularity. I don't know why in church we don't talk about being saved as much. The world doesn't like that terminology, but it is just the New Testament terminology. We have been saved from death, from sin. And so because I was saved, because I became a Christian when I was seven years old, I started to think of it as not much of a testimony. I started to think of it as just either maybe it was the natural outcome of growing up in the family I grew up in or the place where I grew up. I mean, after all, I grew up in Texas in a Christian home and, you know, Texas is God's country and the Cowboys, Texas Stadium has the roof, hole in the roof so the guy can watch his favorite team play. I mean, of course, anyone in this environment should become a Christian, Right? I, I used to, I thought about my testimony that way and I, and I really thought about, I would do this. Tell me if you have done this before. If for those of you who were saved when you were a kid, and that's some of you, how many of you were saved when you were a kid? Like you came in a, yeah, so a good number of you, good number of you, which by the way, I don't mean to minimize in any way testimony of those of you who were saved when you were an adult. Anytime God saves a life is a good thing, Right? So, but for those of us who were saved when we were a kid, I wonder if you started to do the same thing where you started to think, well, I mean, my testimony is not that meaningful. And then you encounter people who, who don't know the Lord and you're thinking, well, what would my testimony have to say to them? Because it wasn't like, I, I haven't gone through what they've gone through. Uh, you know, it, I, I, 
became a follower of Christ at a young age. I wasn't in this, we think, uh, this massive rebellion against God, living this wild, crazy life. And we kind of value the testimonies that are like that and not so much the testimonies that are, yeah, I grew up in church and I came to know the Lord and then, you know, this is what life has looked like since then. And I have realized that, um, and I talk with, when I talk with a lot of believers, I hear that a lot. And that's, this is a standalone sermon. It's not in any part of a series, but as I was praying about kind of where to go next after Isaiah, I just very clearly felt God impressed on my heart. We need to talk about this reality because some of us are not uh, giving God glory for the testimony of being saved as a child. And we need to recapture the, the understanding that God is immensely and in some ways uniquely glorified when he saves a child. When he brings a child into life in him, it is uniquely glorifying to God. And I think that there are some false ideas, some false beliefs, some misconceptions that we have that prevent us from seeing how glorifying it is to God when he saves a kid. And, and then we grow up in that, if, they, if you're like me, and you start to just sort of dismiss your testimony as non-impactful and non-powerful, which one, shows a complete misunderstanding of what salvation actually is, first and foremost, and secondly, fails to understand and comprehend exactly what God has done and how he is the hero of the story, not you. I have found that anytime I minimize my testimony, it's because I think I'm the hero of the story. And I wanna minimize making myself look too good. But the reality is any story that we tell where God is the hero, he doesn't tell bad stories, church. Do you know it? If you were saved when you were five or 50, he does not tell bad stories. Every story God writes is a miraculous story and it's a great story. So I, I, here's what we wanna do. I wanna give you three what I think are false beliefs, misunderstandings that often underlie this minimizing of our testimony if we were saved as a kid, if we were saved when we were young, right? And hopefully, my hope is that we can recapture a little bit of the awe of what, sal what it really means to be saved by God, what that really means. So let's talk about these three things, three false beliefs that keep us from seeing the glory of God and saving children. The first one is this, that becoming a Christian is primarily a decision, that's the first false belief, that becoming a Christian is primarily a decision, not unlike what am I gonna have for lunch, right? That we think, um, I, I used to think this way, because I came to Christ at seven years old, I used to essentially uh, and almost exclusively think about being saved in terms of I heard a good deal and I took up the person who was offering me that good deal on that good deal. I heard about you can have my life, I'll take your sin, and I thought, this is good. And I took him at the deal, and so I made a decision to do that. Now make no mistakes, there is a decision element to salvation. There's no doubt about it. There is a decision element, which is why often as a church we say, hey, today may be the day where you need to make a what? Decision to give your life to Christ. There's no doubt that there is a decision element to what takes place in salvation. But to only talk about it that way or to think of it exclusively as I did when I was young in that way 
misses the very heartbeat, the, the, under, the thing that underlies the decision that's being made, we're talking about what's happening up here instead of seeing what's actually going on at the soul level when it comes to this idea of someone being saved because it is much more. In fact, I would say it is primarily not a decision. It is primarily something different than that, which produces a decision. Look at Ephesians chapter two, verses one through four with me, and we'll see it here. He says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. By the way, that's important, the body and the mind, not just one or the other, and were by nature, now there's a key word, by nature, children of wrath. Now, here's why that's important. Because up to this point, you could have read everything in those verses, in verses one through three, and you could have said to yourself, this is clearly describing someone who is in active rebellion against God. There's no way this could apply to a child. Children are innocent. Children are wonderful. Children are loving, and they are. They're not innocent, but they are wonderful, okay? Yeah, you know if you had them, right? You could have read this and you could say, oh, this is clearly about like, uh, this is about an adult who has been actively rebelling against God and therefore he's being called a son or we could say a daughter of disobedience. But what did he say to eliminate that whole idea that they were and we were by what? By nature, children of wrath. In other words, this is innate. It's inborn this is not just a description of some adult who at some point left behind innocence as a child and chose to rebel against God. Far from it, it's a description of the human condition from birth. By nature, children of wrath. Now follow what he says next. If I can find my place again, here we go. Like the rest of mankind, and then the best word in all the scripture, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us what, church? Alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see what he's saying happens when someone is saved? It's not just a decision that somebody makes. Oh, I'm, I see a good, good offer. I'll take, I'll take that offer. Anytime a human being is saved by God, it is a stillborn soul that is dead, being ripped from the clutches of death and brought into life. Now, is it glorifying to God to think about it that way? When we understand that to, to be saved as a child is, is to be brought out of death and into life, it's not, it is not a seven-year-old hearing a version of the gospel and making a decision. It is a soul being brought out of death and into life. Let me paint it this way for you. Imagine, some of you, some of you have experienced the tragedy of losing a child at birth, a stillborn baby, 
And if you don't, my guess is you know someone who has. Imagine parents know the child is coming and will not live. And the baby's born and the doctors take the child and allow the mother just to cradle it, just for, just for a few moments, to mourn and to grieve. And the, this father and this mother, they look down at this stillborn child and they weep and they grieve over the loss of life caused by sin, which has led to death in the world. And the doctors have gone off and they're in the other corner of the room and they're doing what they need to do and taking care of business. And this mother begins to feel against her chest. Just a faint heartbeat. And then it grows stronger and stronger. Add to that heartbeat now. One breath. Another breath. The child has a beating heart and is breathing and opens his eyes and looks at his mama for the first time. What would you feel in that moment? What would you give in that moment to, to scream and shout for joy that what was once dead is now what, church? Alive. And the doctors would freak out and run around the room and say, what has transpired? What has occurred? And what would they say? Would they walk out of that room and would they say, you know, we really figured out some smart stuff in there and we made that kid live. They would walk out of that room and they would say, we can't explain it, but a miracle has taken place. This child had no life in their body and they were raised to life and we don't know how it happened. If that transpired, we would tell that story over and over and your Facebook feed would be lit up with this story. Every time a child comes to faith in Jesus, it is no less miraculous than the scenario I have just painted for you. It is every bit as miraculous for a child in that children's wing down there to say, today's the day that I'm gonna become a follower of Jesus and for that soul to be raised out of death, snatched from the clutches of death and brought into life is absolutely as miraculous as if that were to happen in a hospital emergency room, in a maternity ward. That's what's taking place. Now here's the danger. When we think about salvation as primarily a decision like I did when I was seven, then it does a couple things. It reinforces my own self-righteousness in telling me I was wise enough to take up a good offer. And it makes me the center of the story. The second thing it does is it, it, it just rips the mystery out of salvation and it turns it into a bargain a deal that I saw and took and it made total sense. But do you know that salvation is mysterious in how it occurs? And when we understand that salvation is really a dead soul being brought back to life, whether that child be five or 50, and we understand that it is a mysterious, miraculous moment whenever that occurs in any life. Because the reality is, the reality is, can you explain to me how the death and resurrection of the Son of God is able to make my dead soul come alive? Can you explain that to me? Is there a physiology to that? Is there some textbook somewhere that I can read that explains to me like an engineer reads his text and understands, oh, if I do this and connect these circuits, then this system will work this way. It's a mystery how it transpires. And we need to be in awe of the mystery 
that God ever saves a soul and raises it out of death and into life. Especially when that soul is that of a child. Now let's look at the next thing. The next belief that I think keeps us from seeing the glory of God in saving children is this one is the the belief that I took the initiative in the process that led to my becoming a Christian. I took the initiative in the process that led to my becoming a Christian. One of the things that we heard in Jessica's story was how God was pursuing her. And my guess is, as you look at your story, as I said earlier, that you would begin to see the fingerprints of God and how he pursued you. One of the things that I started to think about and the reason I kind of minimized my testimony, I don't know if you've done this or not, was that I really started to think that I had done some things that must have made me available to God so that I could respond to what it is he'd done. Now, I never questioned that he initiated my salvation by sending his son But subtly and subconsciously, I had begun to believe that I had been um, someone who had made myself, put myself in a position to respond to God's work. And that I had taken some good initiative, some wise, smart initiative that made that possible. And then I read Romans 3 and found out that I was completely wrong. Because listen to what it says in Romans 3. We already saw it in in Ephesians 2 that we were by nature children of wrath. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Not some people, not a few, not the best and the brightest, not those born into just the right family context. If you just, those are the ones No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. I think we had enough after verse 12, honestly. I don't know that I needed to be told my throat was an open grave. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And then to cap it all off, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that's an important phrase and I'll tell you why because remember in the Proverbs, if you're familiar with the Proverbs, we hear that the beginning of wisdom Right, which is what it would take to to pursue God, right? It would take real wisdom to do that. The beginning of wisdom is what? Does anyone know what the Proverbs tell us? Is the fear of God. And so when Paul picks up Romans and he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, there's no wisdom. There's no wisdom in the human heart that says, I'm gonna go after God. No one has done it. No one has sought after him. He is the one who initiates. And this is deeply important in understanding why it's so glorifying for God to save a child. Because one, I think we, we have to recognize it, it is deeply God glorifying when we understand that I didn't pursue him, but he pursued me and he won me. And does that make you wanna give God more glory than if you were kind of smart enough to figure it out? The second thing it does is we we have this false notion about the innocence of children. I alluded to it earlier, but we already saw in Ephesians 2 and we're seeing again here in Romans chapter three. And if we wanna go further into Romans chapter five, by the way, where he says, in case you think you just weren't pursuing God, like you weren't seeking after him, but you were indifferent, you were maybe just kind of neutral towards God. No, Romans five is gonna tell us you were an enemy of God. 
And when, he, when Paul uses that term, what he means is you were actively trying to thwart the purposes of God in the world. And sometimes I think we, we think we see that in the testimony of someone who's saved when they're 25 or 30 and maybe they're living kind of a wild life and we're thinking, oh, well, I can see how this applies to them. But it applies to me when I was seven. It applies to me when I was six. I was not seeking after God. He took all the initiative and I was not innocent and neither were you. It is deeply God-glorifying when we understand. I mean, we, we should not let ourselves slip into this mode of thinking which says that, you know, when a kid is saved, it's really because they're, they're kind of innocent and pure. The scriptures know nothing of that kind of talk. They just don't, they just don't paint the human condition that way. And you say, no, you were a rebel traitor actively opposed to the purposes of God in the world in your six-year-old heart. In all the ways that you could shake your fist at God, you were willing to do it and you were doing it. And God saved you from that. He saved you from it. The other thing I used to think kind of that goes in line with this was the idea that, um, I used to think, you know, I mean, I grew up in the family I grew up in and one of the, the unique things that I can testify to about the family I grew up in is I don't know anyone, cousin, aunt, uncle, parent, grandparent, I don't know anyone who does not have a genuine relationship with Christ. That's amazing. I did not really realize that, how amazing that was growing up. Again, you kind of grew up in the context and you think that's just normal. And so I began to think, well, of course, this was the natural outcome of growing up in the family that I grew up in. But what that tells me is that I think salvation is a sociological phenomenon. What that means is if you're around it enough, then you'll choose it. But go back to what we already said. What is salvation? Is it primarily a decision that I make because I live inside of the context of a specific family? No, it's a dead soul being raised to life. And when I understand it as death being brought into life, I understand that no amount of living in any cultural context can make that transpire. No amount of living in any cultural context can make that transpire. Only God can raise a dead soul to life. And not only that, when I understand the rebel that I was, even as a child, I begin to understand, I bring those two things together and I understand this was not a sociological, cultural phenomenon. This was a God-breathed work to raise a child and bring him into his family. The last thing that I think we kind of get wrong or, and I don't mean we would ever say these things out loud. I just really mean we hold them as perceptions in our head, sometimes unannounced uh, or unbeknownst to us sometimes. And it leads us into not thinking of these testimonies as being deeply God glorifying. So the third one is this. We think becoming a Christian has not changed the trajectory of my life that much. Now, particularly if you were raised in the church like I was, if you came to faith at a young age, sometimes we think my life would have probably looked pretty much the same had I not come to Christ when I was, you know, five, six, seven years old. But my friends, if you really ponder that, you'll see how false it truly is. Do you know, um, you ever watch like Apollo 13 or any of those space movies, right, where there's astronauts, they're out in space and they've got to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and they end up talking about the angle of re-entry and how if they're you know, in space at this point, if they just veer off their course by a quarter of a degree, they're gonna miss their angle and they're gonna bounce right off the Earth's atmosphere. And I don't pretend to understand the science, but y'all know what I'm talking about, right? 
the same thing applies in this scenario. I think sometimes we think that our life was pretty much on this trajectory and it was gonna be on that trajectory and not much would have changed that. We don't see how radically coming to Christ has changed our life. We do not see it. Just, just to use two examples, right? The first one is found in Romans chapter six. And in Romans chapter six, we hear this, right? What shall, then, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? newness of life. In other words, this whole text is an argument for why the believer should not persist in sin. And what Paul is saying is, if you've come to Christ, then you have been raised with Christ from the grave in the same way that he was raised. You have been raised, dead soul, brought to life, right? We've seen that already. And you are now made to walk in newness of life. In other words, you are no longer, if I could say it this way, you are no longer subject to the penalty of sin, eternal death. You are no longer subject to the power of sin to compel you to do whatever it wants you to do. And you are no longer subject to the pleasure of sin so that you desire sin more than you desire righteousness. The follower of Jesus has been given in Christ power over the penalty, the pleasure, and the power of sin. Now if that's true and you came to Jesus at six years old, Is it better for you to have walked in that truth for more years or less years, church? For more, right? We're gonna go with more on this one. The declaration of the scriptures to us is that the trajectory of your life has been radically altered by coming to Christ. And why would I ever why would I ever want to live another day without him? We we sometimes think that we were saved so that we could live with God forever in eternity. And that is true, but it's but it's only part of the truth. We were saved to live in Christ today, now. We were saved to live life in Christ from the moment he raises us from the dead through all eternity, not just on the other side of the grave. And because sometimes we don't see that salvation is about today, it's about now, it's about living in Christ now and walking in newness of life now, not just forever on the other side of death. Because we don't see that, sometimes we fail to comprehend exactly what we've been given. Your life would be radically different if you had not trusted in Jesus when you were a young kid. Mine would be radically different if I had not trusted in Jesus when I was a young kid. And so when you share your testimony, when you share your story, maybe you don't have a whole lot of life prior to coming to Jesus, right? I I don't know that anyone's really moved by my testimony of the six years that led up to my trusting in Jesus, right? I mean, you know, I can talk about some lying and some deceit and some rebellion. I can talk about that. But what's more powerful is to talk about the joy of life in Christ, the newness of life that Romans 6 says I have had from the moment I trusted in him when I was seven years old. I have had that. I haven't always walked in it appropriately. I haven't always chosen the right things. I've made all kinds of mistakes. But how powerful to tell a story of God's protecting grace that the scars that would have been mine from sin are not mine. I have been protected from things I cannot even fathom. 
And I can't tell you how many times that I felt on the verge of those things and God just said, no. And picked me up and said, you're doing a left turn, buddy, and you're going over here. And those are only the ones that I can see I kind of started sidling up to the line, right? I, can, I can't even begin to imagine all the times that God said, because my spirit dwells in you, because I've given you newness of life, I've given you victory over the pleasure, power, and penalty of sin, I am gonna cause you to walk in such a way that you're never even gonna encounter this other thing over here. You won't even know about it. What a joy. The last thing is that we fail to understand, and this, it's related. In Romans 8, the whole chapter is really about life in the spirit. And one of the truths that we know is when we come to Christ, we receive the spirit of God indwelling us. Yes, church? The spirit indwells us. Now let me ask the question again. Would you rather have the spirit of God indwell you for less time on earth or more time on earth? Again, we're gonna go with more. The spirit of God alive in you. Look, I, I've never met anyone who came to Christ at 25 and said, you know, I really wish I'd given it five more years until I decided Really, I mean, five more years of, of rebellion and non-possession of the Spirit of God and not walking in newness of life and not having joy in Christ. And I would have really, that would have been the better choice. No one says that. Why? Because life in Christ is joyful, peace-giving, restful. It is good. All right, and so Romans 8 reminds us, I'm not gonna read it to you because we're gonna move to communion here, but Romans 8 reminds us that possess, what a, what a rich inheritance we have, that we possess the spirit of God to purify us, unify us with other believers, reveal truth to us, to convict us of sin, to empower us to do the work of ministry. This is all your possession in the spirit of God. And the thing that I have realized about my testimony is that I was indwelt by the spirit when I was seven years old, when God regenerated my soul, my response was to confess that he is Lord and I wanna walk with him. And what happened as a result of that is that his spirit then took up residence in me and because that spirit has been there. My life has been radically different than it would have been had that spirit not been there. I don't know how it could be any different. I don't know how you can possess the spirit of the God who Romans 8 says, who raised Jesus from the dead and that spirit dwells in you, giving life to your mortal body, Paul says, how we could think that somehow the possession of that spirit is not going to radically change our lives from what they would have been is foolishness. You, if you were saved as a child, have lived a life that is wholly different than what you would have lived had that not transpired. That is a testimony. That is a testimony. As we say in my circles, that'll preach, right? That'll preach. That is a testimony of God's goodness. So again, we could go on more and more here. The thing I want you to see, church family, is that whether you, if you were saved as a child, I want you to recapture the wonder of that. And never again, may we never say in the halls of this church ever again, well, my testimony is not that powerful. Can we just never say that again? Can we understand what salvation is and say, yeah, I will never utter that word again? Whether you were saved when you were five or 50, God has done a magnificent, mysterious, majestic work that glorifies him. And we need to sing his praises. We need to sing his praises. And may we see every kid that walks through the halls of this church. May we see everyone, every single one, 
never have to deal with the scars of sin that would be theirs if the Spirit did not take up residence in them. May we see them walk in the power of the Spirit from a young age, and may we pursue it. If you want a reason to serve in children's ministry, there it is. All right, that's the best I got. But we want to see that taking place. Servers, why don't you come? We're going to partake of the elements. Let me say just a quick word about these. We, we do this regularly as a church, and if you're new to church, I just want to kind of acclimate you to what's going on here. These elements, we believe, are symbolic of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, symbolic of his body, symbolic of his blood that he gave for us so that he might save us, what we've been talking about all this time. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've never given your life to him, we're gonna encourage you to just let these elements pass by and to use this as a time to reflect. As we said, we believe God is pursuing you. We believe he wants a relationship with you and that he is given his life, his son's life, so that that might occur. And so we're so glad that you're here investigating that. We want you to investigate more. Ask the, ask the hard questions. Be with us in the journey of that. But let these elements pass for now because they are for those who have, who have given themselves to Jesus, responded to that call. Saints, those who are followers of Jesus, remember that the scriptures tell us to not take, partake of these elements lightly, but with reflection, serious reflection. So as we hold the elements in our hand, we reflect on areas of our life where we're in need of confession and repentance, where we need to do business with God. Areas where we're maybe, maybe perhaps he will speak a word of encouragement. But as we hold them, we don't just hold bread and cup and then take them. We hold them and we ponder the work of Christ. Let his spirit speak to you in this time now. And we reflect together and we do it corporately because we're reminded we're not, we're not just on our own here. He has saved us into a family, into a people. Let me pray and then we'll protect servers, you'll come. Lord Jesus, how good it is to have pondered now how you saved us. And we will hold these elements now because you're so good and we are so fickle and quick to forget. You give us tangible reminders of your grace and your sacrifice. And so as we hold them now, we hold them in your presence and we wait on you to bring your word to us, whatever that may be, conviction, need for repentance, comfort. We're, we stand with a posture of receiving from you now. And we do it together as your loved children. In the name of Jesus, amen.